Hi, watch fam. Welcome to my last watch. This is Gun, and I'm Kaylee. In this show, I've challenged Gun to trade up a hundred dollar watch into a dream watch, which in this case is a Nomos Campus for Gun's dad. We really don't have much updates on this.、Uh, <laughs> we still haven't sold the watch.、Uh, hopefully, in the upcoming weeks, we'll find a buyer. We're recording right now on Sunday, wrapping up our weekend.、Mm-hmm. We just now are returning from a concert in Chinatown. Do you want to explain more about that, Kaylee? Sure. It was the first concert that we've been to in a while. Our last concert, as we explained a couple episodes ago, was right before COVID. Tempe, Arizona. Baseball themed musical <laughs> festival. So this was definitely a change of pace. Currently, I think Seattle is trying to get people out and about, reinvigorate local businesses, and so they held a outdoor concert in Chinatown this weekend. Yeah, it was quite intimate. It was a really fun concert. It was just nice to hear live music again and be in Chinatown. Totally, it was、uh, featuring Hollis Wongware, who is a local Seattle singer, poet, activist. I think folks would probably recognize her most for being on Macklemore's "White Walls" track.、Mm-hmm. Gun, do you want to sing us a? No, <laughs> no, I don't think our viewers want to listen. No, you don't. You can be Macklemore, and I'll be Hollis. How about that? I think you do a better job of <laughs> singing, so I'll leave that up to you. Okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna drop, drop a line, and maybe this will jog people's memory of、okay. what Hollis sounds like or what the track <laughs> I'm referring to is. We might have to cut this out. We'll see how. All、feel. right, we'll see how it goes. Okay, ready?、Yeah. Take us away. Well, now I feel really nervous. <laughs> <clears throat> I was explaining to Gun who was. Uh, Going to be performing at this concert. Every time I'm, I'm trying to get Gun to recall a song, I usually hum it, and Gun's like, "Yeah, I don't know <laughs> what song you're talking about." So we'll see if it's on me or if it's actually on you this time, since our viewers can chime in. <laughs> okay, okay, I think I'm ready. Gun is on. All right. <clears throat> Got that off black Cadillac midnight drive. Got that gas pedal leaning back, taking my time. <laughs> I'm blowing that roof off, letting in. The city never looked so bright. That was actually pretty good. I feel no, like that's that okay. I feel like since I did that, yes, that's worth like a five star Apple Podcast rating. Wouldn't you agree? I agree. And hopefully,、Go. people know、Go. what song I'm talking about now. <laughs> If you don't, just look it up. White Walls, Macklemore. <laughs> no, I think after yeah your version, they'll probably be able to know which song it was. You did a great job. I hope so. <laughs> Something else that we did this weekend was go to see a movie. This was our first time seeing a movie since the pandemic. The movie that we saw was Road Runner, which was a documentary about Anthony Bourdain, and that's who we're actually going to be talking about today. Is Bourdain, and we'll also talk a little bit about his watch collection. Both of us are huge fans of Anthony Bourdain since we're such big foodies. This episode is that much more difficult to talk about. Just because we have so much love and so much respect for Anthony Bourdain, we really want to celebrate his life, which、mm-hmm. I think the documentary did a really good job of. The documentary was about Bourdain's life, as told by some of his closest friends and family, and it covers his life from when he released his 2000 New York Times bestseller *Kitchen Confidential*、uh, to his tragic passing in 2018. I remember checking Twitter the day that. He had passed, and seeing the news, and I just really wanted to believe that this was a hoax, that this、mm-hmm. wasn't real. Yeah, I think that entire day we we're both hoping that you know 
we would find out that it was false news and we would hear differently. But yeah, I remember that day really stood out and it was a very sad day for both of us. Of course, neither of us have ever met Anthony Bourdain. I've actually met him. Well, <laughs> Gunn did run into him in Korea, which we'll touch on later. But he just seemed like such a genuine, authentic, outspoken, mm-hmm. nice guy who was always just so respectful of everyone he featured on his show. More than anything, he was really a fantastic storyteller and was able to give us viewers a glimpse into what life was like for someone who lived across the globe. I think that's what's so amazing about him is just the fact that we've never actually met him, but we feel this connection with him. When he passed, it really felt like the whole world was collectively mourning. I think it was fitting that our first movie back in theaters was uh, one about him. For being our first movie in almost two years, I think it was good that we got to see a documentary on Tony. The two years pre-pandemic, I was going to the movies a lot. I don't know how many of our listeners remember MoviePass, (laughs) uh, but to kind of jog your memory, this is from Wikipedia. MoviePass was an American subscription-based movie ticketing service. With MoviePass, you could see one movie in theaters per day for the grand total of $9.95 per month. Such a bad business model. What were they thinking? (laughs) I honestly don't know how they thought that this could be a sustainable (laughs) business model. You were one of the reasons why they went bankrupt. (laughs) Well, I actually, I think, was pretty modest. At most, I probably saw a movie once per week. Okay. There's some people who are seeing it more than that. On the daily? Yeah, on the daily. And hey, if that's what the MoviePass subscription is, all the power to you. Well, after MoviePass went off into the sunset, I started an AMC Stubbs membership, which was kind of similar, except it was $20 per month, but uh, still worth it. So I saw a fair number of movies. February 2019, that was the last movie I saw. So it was really nice to just be back in theaters. Yeah, it was fun to be back. Fortunately, there (laughs) wasn't too many folks in the theater. It was pretty well spaced, so I felt very comfortable. Before going to the movie, I listened to Dave Ching's podcast, where he had director Morgan Neville on, and he claimed that there's actually just 60 hours of footage from Tony's early years. There was a local filmmaker who started to film Bourdain just before his rise to stardom. This filmmaker intended to create a documentary, but never finished. So in the beginning of the documentary, where they're covering his Kitchen Confidential days, you see him wearing a Cartier watch. So I'm guessing that's where that came from. It must have been from that uh, unreleased footage. I mean, I think the the amazing thing about Tony is that his come up happened relatively late in life during Mm -hmm. his early 40s. And not that being in your 40s, you're old by any means. (laughs) But I feel like a lot of Folks may have started out in the limelight a little bit early because it really did seem like he was living a very modest life as a chef, just trying to make ends meet. And within a couple of months of his book dropping, he's all of a sudden doing interviews with Oprah and whatnot. What's amazing is that he was able to stay as grounded as he was, even with this overnight stardom, because you don't, you see money and fame changing people, but it seems like Tony always was very grounded. And that's what a lot of his friends in the movie seem to say. 
I never realized how big of a watch guy Anthony was. At the same time, I never really had any <laughs> interest in watches. But when you're watching the movie, I felt like in nearly every scene, he was wearing a watch. Yes. It was hard to focus on this documentary because I was so focused on trying to figure out which watch he was wearing during which period. What's very interesting is when he first started off as a chef or the early days, I see him wearing a Cartier watch. He's wearing that, I think that's his everyday watch. So I'm just kind of surprised he would have chose that being a chef because Cartier is known for being more of a dress watch, even though the one that he's wearing, it's full metal. I think it was a Santos. I could be wrong, but I know Cartier's are notorious for being scratched very easily. So I'm just surprised at that selection, but it is a classy, simple watch under the radar. In preparation for this episode, I tried to do some research about Bourdain and his watches, and I really wasn't able to find any content in terms of him being interviewed specifically about his watches. I don't think there's footage out there or content regarding his watch collection until it hit the auction. About a year after he passed, his estate auctioned off some of his watches. When you uh, search for his watches, that's most of the information that you find. It seemed like he was a low-key watch collector. And even when you see the watches he collected, for someone being in his position, he could have had much larger watch collection focusing on like more higher-end watches. When I was looking at the range of what watches he owned, I really wish I could have gotten a better sense of did he pick watches for certain utility purposes? Was it more about the dial? Um, you know, what was his reasoning behind those watches in his collection? Because as you mentioned, it didn't seem like there was necessarily one brand that he went to. Mm -hmm. It really did seem like a, a range. Well, from the research that I've done, I was able to find out that he first started or one of his watches in his collection is a vintage Rolex Perpetual, Oyster Perpetual. And that was actually handed down to him by his father. So I think that's how it started. Was that watch in the movie? No, we didn't see that one in the movie. Mm -hmm. But it's very similar to the tutor that you have. That's an Oyster date. It's similar in design. He definitely was a watch enthusiast, but I don't know if he actually talked about it much. And even from his collection, you can kind of get a good sense of his style because it's more like simple classic watches. He owned that Rolex vintage Rolex Oyster Perpetual and then a Rolex Datejust, a Panerai Radiomir, Patek, Tag Heuer, and then also it goes to a CC Filson and Ball Standard watch which in the movie, there's a couple of scenes where I was trying to figure out what watch it was. And at first I thought it was a citizen. And then so now I'm thinking it was either this ball watch, but also he had an Ernest Benz watch, which gets discussed. But I'm not, I don't know too much about this watch, but it's a pretty low-end watch, I believe. And so his collection goes from uh, high-end to very low-end. So he had a very diverse collection when it came to watches. The one watch that really stood out to me was the Square Chronograph. The Tag Heuer? Tag Heuer. Yeah, I really like that one. Was there any like watches that stood out to you that you saw? Well, I mean, the watch that stood out the most was definitely the Rolex Datejust, just because I had seen it come up in auction. Mm. And I had that on, like I'd known about the watch and just to see him, I think he wears that one the most in most of his shows, because you'll see that. And that it was pops the blue out. dial. Correct. Yeah, right? it pops mm -hmm. out because it's the blue dial. And even in the auction, I think that sold for the highest amount. We pulled up the auction set. I think that one sold for around 
39,000. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then the one that sold for the least, I think, was the Fulson. Right? Yeah. I think that was around 10,000, maybe. Or the ball. The ball actually sold for lower. Okay. How much did so the ball sell for? So the ball standard fireman sold for about $8,000. Okay. Yeah, I've never heard of that brand. I've heard of it. I don't know how much it actually costs. Is it an American brand? It is an American brand. I was just looking up their basic watches. Go anywhere from like $800 to $1,000 or more. Okay, so it's it's not like a cheap... I mean, I wouldn't consider that cheap. I know that's mm -hmm. not like super high end, but that's a a higher price point. Still a good quality watch, yeah. Mm -hmm. And it's just interesting that he had this watch in the collection. Uh, It seems like he definitely had a few beater watches since he did so much traveling. But the Ernst Benz, I don't even know if I'm pronouncing this correctly. It just seemed very unlike him. In what way? I don't it's a very big watch. I mean, he's a big guy too, but a lot of his other watches were more smaller vintage, you know, pieces. But he was wearing this one watch that would stand out that I thought it was a citizen in the documentary. Mm-hmm. But it was either this ball watch or the Ernst Benz. But I found out that the Ernst Benz was actually a present by the company to Anthony Bourdain. So he actually wore it on multiple episodes. I just thought it was kind of unique that watches are used. I know you say I romanticize watches and when I talk about memories and, you know, the connection I have with it. But I think food is very similar in watches in that regard where it kind of takes you back to, you know, whether a trip we had, you know, a certain dish, you'll have a dish and it takes you back down memory lane. And I think watches are kind of the same and so I don't know if Anthony Bourdain saw that same connection, but Maybe. or it could just be me romanticizing <laughs> my watches. Nevertheless, it was a really good documentary. There was some controversy because in parts of the documentary, they actually deep faked Anthony Bourdain's voice. That is kind of weird. So yeah. it Basically, it was Anthony Bourdain's words, but he had never read them out loud. So they used like... It was in his journal. Or I don't know if it was in his journal necessarily, but they used artificial intelligence to bring these words to life. Okay. I I could definitely see that being a controversy. It's, yeah. Even when I found out, I was like, oh, I thought that was just Anthony Bourdain. (laughs) Going into the movie, I had known that. So I was kind of trying to look out for those instances. And honestly, I couldn't tell when that happened. At least it wasn't like a hologram. (laughs) Yeah, I'm sure Anthony Bourdain would have really uh, been happy about that. But yeah, it was a good movie to see in theaters. I I think like everyone in the theater was crying, including myself. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, the, The sad thing about Anthony Bourdain was here was this guy who was envied by so many people. He could travel across the world, eat the best food. Seems like he really sounded, surrounded himself with a great group of friends and family, had money, had fame, and yet he still was unhappy. And I don't mean to sound cliche, I think that really all goes to show that you never really know what someone mm-hmm. else is going through. Just because everything seems good on the outside doesn't really speak to that person's mental or emotional health. And these topics were explored more in the movie. I think watching that footage, knowing what happens at the end, it was kind of difficult. It definitely was really sad. Kind of on the flip side, something that was nice about the movie is you got to see a softer side of Tony when he spent time with his daughter. Mm -hmm. One of the directors was saying that 
the content that they actually put on the TV shows that he was in was probably the most unexciting content. <laughs> it's really all the things that happened beside, behind the scenes that they couldn't air. That was I the could, most exciting. I could definitely see that because the footage that they released for this documentary, there were so many raw moments. Well, like I said, Roadrunner is in theaters now. I think it's actually going to be released on HBO Max and CNN on a later date. And this is the type of movie that you can appreciate at home on yeah. TV as well. Mm-hmm. One of the last TV series that Tony did was Parts Unknown. Like the name implies, it was about him going to different cities, different countries, and really seeking out the unknown parts of the area. (laughs) One of the episodes he did in 2015 was in Korea. This is when I got to meet Anthony Bourdain or run into him to be exact. I don't know if I'd consider it a meeting, but I'll let you (laughs) tell the story. A brief encounter with Anthony Bourdain in the streets of Gangnam. I was getting off work. I was working in Korea at the time. After work, a lot of times in Korea, you'll go out for drinks. And so we were heading out for drinks, and I see this tall white guy walking from across the street, very tall. And he's just amongst, as you've been to Gangnam Station, it's very busy. It's just filled with people on the streets. And, you know, we're walking by, and I see this super tall guy. It seems like Anthony Bourdain, and the closer I get, I know it's Anthony Bourdain. I'm kind of, you know in shock uh, it was a huge fanboy moment for me so i'm just staring at him <laughs> i noticed anthony bourdain looking at me and then i can tell that he knows i know who he is because i don't think other people in korea at the time actually knew anthony bourdain and then at this time they had already shot i believe so it wasn't like they had the film crew they had one small like standing video like a walking video camera okay. but that was it but it wasn't like they had a lot of staff around them i see him walking along with like four Korean men like in their 40s or 50s and I'm like this is so random because at the time I didn't know they were shooting in Korea Mm -hmm. and I was like what is Anthony Bourdain doing in Gangnam Station and I remember we had a brief moment there and I got to see him and I just thought that was the coolest thing and I remember I texted you right after I saw him or I cuckolded you (laughs) yeah I remember you cuckolded me and told me about that story and in in retrospect I think it's good that you didn't approach him since it seemed like that it, it didn't seem like he could ever be anonymous. Yeah. I think that's one of the things I've stressed him out later later mm-hmm. on in life. So in retrospect, I think it's actually good. You never Yeah, that anything. probably is a good thing. But if you did have the opportunity to have a conversation with him, what were some things that you would point out about Korea in, in like a Ooh. parts unknown type of sense? That's a good question. I, I have two things that come to mind, but what's funny is one of those things gets covered which is uh, I would definitely introduce him to army stew because I think that's one of the, not the coolest, but there's so much history behind how this food was made. Army stew gets its name for how once the Korean War ended in the 50s, Koreans didn't really have much food. A lot of people were starving. So what they did was people would scavenge for food around army bases, uh, American military bases. And a lot of times it would be processed meat, spam, sausage, cheese, and all these different items. And we would basically throw that into a stew with other vegetables we had. I personally did not look very appetizing to me. I don't know. Is that something that you enjoy eating? I do enjoy eating. It's actually pretty good and it goes really well. It's like good drinking food. So it goes really, it pairs nicely with soju because it's so spicy, salty. For me, we use spam. Like I grew up eating spam all the time. And I remember coming to the States and certain people had a different perception of spam. 
And they're like, hey, I can't believe you eat spam. I was like, no, I grew up on spam. We would use throw this in soups all the time. And I was thinking how that started, and that's because of the army stew. Mm. But now Koreans have perfected spam. I don't know if you know this, but Korea, we gift spams on holidays, <laughs> and there's like gift sets just full of spam. I grew up eating spam too because my mom was from Hawaii, so definitely had a lot of spam fried rice, spam musubis, and then. I don't think this is a Hawaiian thing, but I know my dad used to like open cans of Vienna sausages. Which just thinking about that, just ugh. did you ever have Vienna sausages? <laughs> oh yeah, I did. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if that gets thrown into army stew, but oh yeah, all all sorts of sausage and yeah. Yeah, I think I'll pass on army stew. <laughs> but yeah, yeah I'm a yeah. huge fan. But also the army stew, which they touched upon, because there's so much history surrounding that. And the second would be in Korea. There's drivers driver restaurants. It's called Kisashikdang. It's a restaurant for cab drivers. And so, is this like a branded restaurant, like KFC, Popeyes, or no, no? It's not a branded restaurant, but all the restaurants have the same name, so cab drivers know. Okay, so it's more like a restaurant concept. Correct. Yes, and they'll all feature similar dishes. So, what are some of the staple items? At one of these places, basically some meat dishes. They'll have bulgogi, spicy pork, a lot of side dishes at these restaurants. So it's basically rice and a lot of side dishes. And what's unique is a lot of the food they try to not have liquid in it because they want to reduce the bathroom usage for these drivers. Hmm. I thought that was interesting. But what it's known for, it has to be cheap and really good quality food. Well, the next time we go to Korea, we should probably check one of those places out there. Yeah, and it's all like under like I think ten, twelve dollars. So yeah, it'll be a fun experience. So I wanted, I thought that would be something right up Anthony Bourdain's alley. So yeah, those are the two things I wanted to bring up to him. But another episode of Parts Unknown that he did was actually Seattle back mm-hmm. in two thousand seventeen. I remember before that episode came out, everyone was pretty excited, wanting to figure out what places he was going to feature. Once the episode dropped, there are some mixed reactions. One of the themes that came out a lot was that Seattle had a lot of serial killers. Which I had no idea until well, we watched that show. <laughs> I don't know. If I, the thing is, I don't know if that's actually The private true. investigator said there's 75 serial killers currently residing in, in yeah, Washington. In one of the scenes, Anthony <laughs> has a meal with a, a private investigator yeah. The, the PI just throws out this random number. It's like 75. On any given day, there could be 75 serial killers in Seattle. And it's like, where did you get that number? Did you just make that up? <laughs> it was a, an interesting episode. Something that we want to do sometime is a, a podcast episode about some of the places we would recommend going to in Seattle. Ooh, I like that. Yeah. 24 hours in Seattle. Right. Kind of. More like a 24-hour layover style. Yeah, that's a, that'll actually be a lot of fun because I feel like, yeah, as big of a fan as I was of Tony, the Seattle episode, definitely I felt like he could have featured more. That's going to wrap it up for episode 13. I hope you all enjoyed it. We miss you, Tony. Thanks for joining us for this episode, and we look forward to seeing you next week. Bye.